Today's episode is brought to you by the graduate programs at Mays Business School. Texas A&M University has an extensive portfolio of graduate and executive development programs that can help you accelerate your career or make a significant career change. In addition to our highly ranked full-time MBA program for students with work experience, we have six specialized master's programs in College Station for students with or without work experience. Our specialized master's programs include MS Accounting, Finance, Human Resource Management, Management Information Systems, Marketing, and a master's in Real Estate. Also in College Station, we have an MS Business Program, which is a degree for non-business majors seeking to enhance their undergraduate degree with business acumen. In Houston, at our purpose-built city center campus, we offer three part-time programs for working professionals, the Executive MBA Program for managers with 10 or more years of work experience, the Professional MBA Program for students with at least two years of experience, and MS Analytics a data science master's degree available in person or live online for working professionals with three or more years of experience. To find out how Mays can help you transform your career, go to mays.tamu.edu to explore the programs we offer. Welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deer, the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs, here with your spectacular host, Ben Wiggins. Hello, Shannon. How's it going? <laughs> I don't know if I feel I feel I feel a little spectacular this morning. You're spectacular, always. Oh, I appreciate that. Especially all mornings, I think. That's nice of you. Well, we have part two with Dean Jones here. We already did an intro for him in the last episode. So if you didn't listen to that, I would recommend going back and catching part one. Yes. Dean Jones really shares more about himself personally, which I really appreciated learning more about him outside of the professional world. So we get to hear a little bit about his family and the family he grew up in and the family that he and Fern have as well. So I would recommend going back and listening to that. But now we'll jump into part two, which includes a little bit more about his research and the future of May's Business School. Dean Jones and I shared some common ground in the sales world. So we're going to start this episode by talking a little bit about my sales experience and his and how that all kind of ties together. Let's go back to incentives. I, When I first moved to Los Angeles, I did uh, several years with health markets and InSphere Insurance Solutions and was basically an insurance agent, mm-hmm. uh, sort of part-time as uh, my entertainment career got going. And for us, we dealt with the CRM issue, uh, customer relationship management right. Right. Um, issue as well. And that one was difficult for our company to solve the balancing um, which products we were selling seemed easier for them to solve. And the reason was they were just able to, they, they just offered us higher commission on certain supplemental products that the company felt were very high return for them. So they just gave us basically as salespeople a bigger piece of that action. Right. But the CRM issue was something that always ended up being a problem for them other than, so it seems to me that when you're trying to get someone to do something, the most obvious way to get them to do it is just to pay them to do it. And that's what most people think. Okay. So, so what we're able to do is we control yes. for those effects. Right. Right. Okay. So if you think about it, what comes to mind that would be intuitive would be if I pay you more, you'll right. do that action. 
Right. right. So we control for incentives. Okay. For pay. Okay. What we're really interested in are the psychological effects. Let oh, me give you some examples. Please, please. And that's really what we do. Is yeah, yeah. This more is the psychology of this. This is the fascinating yeah. part of it. So your 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 question, your original question was, what causes people to buy? Right. Right. So I'm more on the business to business side. Right. Right. So I'm calling on customers who are selling to consumers, and that's my focus. But you can apply some of the same principles if you're looking at B2C, business to consumers, right? So if you look at some of the psychology behind this, in the, in the question of what motivates salespeople to use software, whatever that software is, sure. there is a theory out there that we use, and that theory has been around for a while. It's called the theory of planned behavior. Okay. The theory of planned behavior. And so what's fun about the research that we do is we find these theories, and those theories are answers to some of the questions that we're talking about. Sure. Right? And then we're able to collect real data and use statistical analyses to kind of tease out what effects we're interested in while using that theoretical underpinning. Mm-hmm. And what we did with the research looking at why certain salespeople were able to adopt the technology and others didn't, we looked at things such as facilitating conditions. All right. We looked at subjective norms. All right. These are kind of anchored in this theory of planned behavior. Mm -hmm. Facilitating conditions could be simply the extent to which the company is training their salespeople on how to. Right. All right. And these are perceptions, how the salespeople perceive that the company is actually providing the support they need for them to use the technology. Right. Right. Subjective norms could be how there are norms in that environment, that work environment, Mm -hmm. that could be conducive to getting me to use the technology. So, So, for example, are my colleagues using the technology? That's where I was going to go. And And, and how closely do you work with your colleagues to where if there's someone who's using it a lot and knows how to use it well, you can just turn to them and say, hey, Bob, or hey, Teresa, or whoever, can you show me how to use this? So do we have that kind of uh, environment where we're able to work like that? But now think about it. A lot of salespeople are out away from offices. Oh, yeah. Good point. I mean, we did outside sales. Right, right. So we would go to our clients. Uh And in some cases, we would work out of our home. So what makes this especially a problem is if you have outside salespeople working in remote offices Mm -hmm. where they don't have direct contact with their colleagues, how do you get them to use the technology? And that's often the case in outside sales. So we have to be able to measure psychologically what they think about and how they think about the kind of support that they're getting. And it could be real or it could be imagined. And that's what makes this fun. Um, Yeah, I bet so. So we find all kinds of surprises. Uh, Sometimes it's counterintuitive. We get into some of these statistical effects and they are actually counterintuitive. You might think this is the way it's going to be, Mm -hmm. but we find other things. And that's why certain companies want to use us to help them understand what's really going on. Because you can actually, not only can we publish these papers in these major journals, but we also have companies using what we're finding. 
And we use that in a variety of ways. For example, we're able to go back to a company after we do our analysis and we write an executive summary of the paper that we're sending off to an academic journal. Sure. And then sometimes those companies will come back and say, you know what, we really want you to come in and teach our people what's going on. Right. And that's under executive education. And at Mays, we have a center for executive development. So we're able to work through our Center for Executive Development to create these customized executive education courses. And sometimes the managers will actually use the findings to build into their training system, right? So it's really, I I love this kind of work, is exploring these kinds of unanswered questions, even when they seem simple, they're not. And that's, uh, that's what makes it fun. Shout out to Steve Pato, who was the guy who recruited me to InSphere and Health Markets. One of the first things that he, Steve was our divisional manager and later our agency manager. And one of the first things that he told us, told me was that sales, and I wasn't sure that sales was the right fit for me mm-hmm. at first. And Steve helped me make that transition when he said, sales is not about selling. It's about helping people it buy. Is. Right. It's right. you are, you are a facilitator to use a word you used earlier. Right. Um, and when I realize that I'm just trying to help people figure out what it is that they want, right. not what I want Correct. them to do. Yeah. Um, that's the right orientation. And that's the orientation that we use when we're teaching sales and sales management. So then with that in mind, the salesperson is kind of a, a representative of an idea as much as anything of the idea of uncovering that, that process of uncovering and ex- sort of of self-discovery. Like you can get a it little is. bit that's, existential to me, about that's it. That's what I love about it. Right. Is, you know, you don't walk in with these preconceived ideas. Yes. You're able to really understand the individual. And in this case, the individual's company. Uh-huh. All right. And really think about all of the different product and service offerings that you have. Right. And then you just customize. So the fun part of it is really trying to get in the heads of our customers to really understand them at a deep level. And sometimes there are stated needs Mm -hmm. that are pretty explicit. And sometimes there are implicit needs. And so part of what we teach is how to ask the right questions. Right. Because I believe selling is not telling. It's asking, right? It's asking those strategic questions to uncover what's really in the minds and hearts of these prospective clients. Right. And by the way, while we're at it, I think one of your questions is, do we use that today as, as uh, we build our business school? And the answer is That's exactly where I was going. Absolutely. To say, I got in the mind of perfect. <laughs> as, <laughs> please, please but, can keep doing that. Yeah, keep doing uh, that. So, so, and that's what we use. So we're able to, so think about all of the things that we have going on in the business school. We have right. different programs. We have great faculty. We uh-huh. have great students. We've got fantastic staff. And so we have a whole host of product and service offerings. Mm-hmm. And because of my mindset, which I've been in sales all my life, right. I'm able to see all of the different parts of the business school and I'm able to work with our development team to travel and go visit some of our alumni, our former students, mm-hmm. as a former student, which right. makes this very special, Sure, and to talk about 
what we're trying to build in terms of Mays Business School, and that's national prominence, right? Uh, it is really, you know, we're not in the business of market share and profits. We're not not-for-profit organization. We're not in that business. We're in the business of mind share. I tell a lot of people about mind share. What does that mean? When I say Mays Business School, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Home. Okay, good. And let me ask you, at any time in your academic career, did you come to the school on a scholarship? Yes. So did I. Okay. Three times. Okay, right. As an undergraduate, I had a scholarship, and I'm so grateful. All right. As an MBA student, I was on a scholarship. I'm a first-generation college student. So I lived off of scholarships. Even as a PhD student, I had a forgivable loan. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about it, and I'm able to go out with our development team or not, and talk to our former students about the need for scholarship dollars, Mm -hmm. I'm able to look directly at a prospective donor and say, I am the result of scholarships, of donors caring about the future giving me an opportunity to get a college education. Mm, mm-hmm. I am. I know that. That's sincere, right? Sure. It's authentic. It's all true. And when I ask, would you be willing to help us think about students of the future? Would you be willing to donate to help others? And in fact, my wife and I endowed a scholarship ourselves because we also want to give back, pass it back as Aggies. And so when we do that, that is one of the quote unquote products that we have to sell. And that is to get more scholarship dollars in. Mm -hmm. We have great programs to talk about and all of our programs need financial support too. Right. One clear example is we worked with the company for three and a half years to get them to endow what we are now calling the Sales Leadership Institute. Okay. Right? We've had this professional selling initiative that's been led by Dr. Janet Parrish, but we have a big vision. We wanted to take it from being an initiative that's really marketing-centered, marketing mm-hmm. students primarily going through this curriculum in sales and sales management, and we wanted to build a bigger vision something that could transcend the college, the university for that matter. Mm -hmm. And how do we take students from any major and get them to understand these principles that we're talking about, sales and sales management principles? And how do we teach them to be customer-centric and focus on the relationship building, not on using techniques that are pushy and manipulative? Right. Right? We speak against those. We talk a lot about building these relationships. And for the last few years, we've built a strong relationship with one of the companies that I can't announce yet. Mm -hmm. But the company just recently gave us $4 million to build on this vision that we just talked about. And they are endowing our sales leadership program. That's great. That's an institute now, which is going to be campus wide. So that's an example of using what we teach in the classroom in our everyday lives as we do development work, fundraising, Mm -hmm. to help our school grow. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one more example. I know you've got some questions you want to get to, but I get excited about this. Please, please. This is, this is right in my area here. But um, when I think about, for example, think about May's Business School. I was part of this business school when we weren't even ranked 
We're now a top 20 public business school. Yeah. So I've actually been part of this university, and I've watched the rise of Texas A&M and Mays Business School. The infusion of funds that Lowry and Peggy Mays made to this college, right. that gift accelerated the mind share that we need to grow the business school. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of years ago, they infused more money into the Mays Business School. I remember when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that just happened a couple of years ago. And when we think about it, we're not a regional school anymore. We're beyond Texas. Uh, if you look at our peer schools and our aspirant schools, they are beyond Texas. They are outside of Texas, right? And so the way we look at our quote-unquote competitors, although we're not really competitors, we actually help each other, which is kind of strange. Yeah. It's different, but we do. We help each other go through accreditation and all. But when you think about the schools that we so-called compete with, those schools are they have bigger endowments than we have. Mm -hmm. They have faculty that we want. They have programs that we admire, mm -hmm. and we take some of those ideas, and we bought, by the way, we give some ideas away, too, quite a bit. And, and so now it's, it's an opportunity for us to say, look, we want to grow, and one way to get there is to have some permanent funding. All right. So we always say that we used to be a state supported school. Mm -hmm. Now we're a state assisted school. OK. Soon we'll be just a state located school. <laughs> so if you look at state appropriations nationally, they tend to be declining. Right. And so we have to rely on philanthropy to really raise the mind share of our business school. That right. infusion of money that came from the Mays Family Foundation made such a difference that it put us on the map. Sure. All right. And then what they did just two years ago, raise the game again. Sure. All right. We are currently working on expanding our building right outside here. We want to add 75,000 square feet to already 260,000 that we're in now. We want more active learning classrooms. We have a vision for connecting students, you know, getting students to collaborate, right? To communicate better. And so our vision is to build that kind of an environment. And that big gift that we had from the Mays Family Foundation two years ago is enabling us because 15 of that 25 million is going to this very project. That's enabling us to add to our very fiscal facilities, our physical facilities, mm -hmm. I should say. And so that's what we're working on now. So, yes, in terms of taking what we teach our students, which is how to identify needs, how to sell a vision, how to create a vision and communicate a vision and getting, in our case, donors to buy into that vision and help us. Absolutely. We use what we teach. Sure. What does an active learning classroom look like? Yeah. So uh, that's fun. So if you look at it, if you go into um, a business uh, major company, you'll see active learning spaces. There are different configurations. So you might have a room with for just two people working through a business problem. Okay. You might have a room that could, that house, uh, could house six people, you know, different configurations, different sizes. But the key is, you know, learning has changed a lot. For example, we tend to, you know, if you go back some years ago, we, we teach our students by technically just one-way communication. Right. That's, so what, that's, the, that's professor. the next question I was going to ask. Yeah. So the professor uh, teaching to the students, right, in a sense. 
to some degree, we have to have some of that now, and we will continue because, especially at the lower level classes, you have a lot of students who are trying to find themselves, right? Um, which major, right? Should I be a business student? Is this the right school? I mean, they're still trying to find themselves. Sure. So we still have to have that aspect of teaching. But as you move into the upper level classes, there's some problem solving that we really want you to do, mm-hmm. right? It could be a real world challenge that we bring in and then we have you go out into a room and have a workspace, whiteboarding, digital types of technology, all kinds of technology to uncover the problems and to arrive at a solution. And so our active learning spaces that we are envisioning would be throughout this expansion of the Wainer building. So we're going to have a couple of floors with different active learning spaces, right? We're also going to have the first floor is going to be open space, Hmm. right? If you go to business schools today, you find a lot of open space where people can connect, right? Makes sense. We're going to have a coffee shop finally. Ah. (laughs) We're excited about it. I'm excited about that too. uh, A company is already- Breaking news here. Yeah, yeah. uh, A company has already put money in to name the coffee shop too, Ah. by the way. So uh, we're pretty excited about that. And then we've got this transformation center idea, which is going to be high-end technology, fully immersion types of technology where students can go in. As an example, they can go in and connect to a guest speaker who's in another part of the world. And we can broadcast. So we have we have a big vision to really expand our building and building those types of classrooms. Fascinating stuff. So let's back up a little bit. Shortly after you came to Mays, you led the college in a strategic planning process. Some people might think every organization is always planning strategically. Retreats are a regular feature of business, et cetera. What was special about this particular process? I think what was special about this one is it was a true grassroots effort. Okay. So a lot of folks will engage in a strategic planning process, which may indeed be a retreat or an advance. Some people call those advances, right? Okay. Uh, as opposed to retreating. But, you know, so you take a group of leaders off campus in our case and you do that. And we right. did. We did that in mm-hmm. 2016, January. We took 30 people from across the college away and we went to a facility that's right outside of Dallas. But that was just a piece of it. What was special about the whole process was that we asked faculty, all faculty, all staff, some of our students, our various board members participated. So it was a grassroots effort. And so I think that's really special because all of a sudden it becomes everybody's strategic plan. Mm -hmm. See, that engagement leads to involvement. That's that's a consultative approach. And that's that's what we teach. Right. right. And that's what we did. So for the most part, that was what was special. We had some staff members here in our college who who said they had never been asked about the future of the business school. All right. But they were asked during this process. And we had town hall meetings. We had lunch and learn sessions. We really did try to get everybody involved in thinking about the future of our business school. And I'm really proud of that. Sure. Really proud of that. Yeah, as as you should be. What, What was the piece of feedback that you got at the grassroots level that got your attention the most? Let me describe in general the different phases that we went through. Okay. So when I joined here, the first thing I did was I went out and I talked to our donors first. 
Okay. I traveled a lot. I talked to our donors, our supporters, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get to some of marketing guys. So I started with the external. That's what marketing people do. Right. right. And so I started with the external. And my question was exactly the question that I asked you. When you think of May's Business School, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And in that process, in that research, if you will, I heard various strengths of this business school. Right. I remember my first faculty and staff meeting here. I went to the faculty and staff and I put up eight different themes that I heard in the marketplace. Okay. And then I said, now, I'm just sharing those things. This is what I heard. Now we're going to go through a strategic planning process and let's see how close we are. Okay. So then the next step was we put together an off-site meeting. Right. We went to a place just outside of Dallas, 31 of us, and we had facilitators there. And we talked about the big picture. We really spent a lot of time around the big picture, beyond rankings, beyond coursework, beyond all those things. Let's think big, right? And so one outcome of that is all of a sudden we started thinking, you know, at the end of the day, what are we really doing? What is the true vision? And we went through a process and arrived at the vision is we are to advance the world's prosperity. prosperity. Now, that's beyond a course, is beyond a program, is beyond a major. But when you think about that vision, that is aspirational, but it's also realistic. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. So in that process, that whole strategic planning process, we went through this. We started thinking, well, one, are we doing that now? Is it possible to advance the world's prosperity? And so we started thinking about all of our different assets in our college. For example, we have a Center for International Business Studies. You know that. All right. We actually have a grant from the United States Department of Education. We're one of only 15 business schools in the country with this grant. And every five years, we have to go up for renewal. And we've held on to it for a number of years. That grant allows us to have partnerships with schools abroad. In addition, we're able to take our students abroad, study abroad opportunities. And I always say to the students, those aren't vacations, (laughs) right? This is a chance for our students to truly go to another culture and understand that culture and understand what it would be like if they were all of a sudden the leader, the CEO of a company, a multinational company. And that job entails working with staff members, colleagues to deliver goods and services to people outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so if we expose our students to other cultures, their their minds will think a little differently. And I've actually watched those transformations. I used to take students abroad. I have witnessed transformations where students believe because it's we tend to be a little ethnocentric. We think, for example, here in the U.S., hey, we run out of groceries, we hop in a car, we go to an H-E-B, we fill our baskets. Go to a country when they don't have running water and they don't have transportation. Mm-hmm. Right? And you think about it, if you are running a company and you have to get to those people, right? how do you do that? So that, those are the kinds of thoughts that our students have. And those are transformational experiences that we're already doing, 
right? And so we started by thinking about what we're already doing in terms of advancing the world's prosperity. Our students will graduate. They'll become leaders in companies, right? So if you even just look at the leadership side, look at the CEOs, as you already know, Texas A&M leads that space in terms of CEOs and Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. Our business school has its fair share of CEOs who are out there. So we would like for our students to one day run big organizations or start businesses. Mm-hmm. That's why we have an entrepreneurial focus. Right. At any rate, so when we think of advancing the world's prosperity, we started thinking about what we're doing already and how we could continue to move that vision forward. One of the reasons that we're sitting here now is because when I returned to Texas A&M as a student, as an MBA student, I found it really striking in, and it it started with the application process. Mm -hmm. I felt like Texas A&M was an institution that puts its money where its mouth is in terms of values Mm. and in terms of family. Right. And the process of bringing really high academic achievement, advancing the world's prosperity, blending that with values that really mean what they say was really compelling to me. Sure. And the the idea of getting that message out into the world in a new media space was something that really excited me. And so that was sort of the inception of this podcast. What do you feel equips you uniquely well to carry out this vision? What makes you different and and how do you put that stamp on the process of advancing the world's prosperity? So I'll start with the faculty and staff that we have here. We really have such great faculty and staff and and you can't do it without great people. You just can't do it without great people. You know, I always say people make the place. Mm -hmm. And so part of our culture is a very family oriented culture. That's really embedded here. And that's, you know, my predecessor built it, I'm carrying it on, and that is to maintain this family culture that we have. So for starters, we've got to hire and retain the right people to maintain our culture. Mm -hmm. And I've got to start right there. Now, what do I add? Well, one, I call myself um, a bridge builder. Okay. And I've, I've had that as kind of my job description for a very long time. And I'll tell you when it started. It started when I started thinking about the sales center concept. And I was there as an assistant professor. That's important. And people who are listening to this podcast who are in academia will actually react to that because I shouldn't have been doing that. I was naive, but I, you know, so I I was still held accountable for publishing and teaching. But in addition to that, I took on this very heavy service load because I was asked to. And uh, and that was to help build a sales center. And, And I started thinking about it. So one, I carried the bag. That's important. I was actually out in the field, Mm -hmm. actually went on live sales calls, was actually a key account executive. And now all of a sudden I'm a, I'm an academic and I'm a professor. Right. And so, as I said earlier, I'm able to teach from a variety of perspectives. One, I carry the bag. Right. And I'm proud of that. I called on customers. Mm -hmm. So it's beyond what's in the textbook. I can use the textbook. I can talk about what it was like to lead people. 
because I did that. And I'm able to talk about the research side of it, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that is in place. And so I take that and I build on it. As a dean, I'm a business guy. I've worked for three Fortune 100 companies. I've been in leadership roles since I was 26 years old. Right. And I've, I've led sales teams. I've led managers, sales managers. All right. So I bring that to the role of being a dean. And mm-hmm. that's an important piece of it because the leadership started 30 something years ago for me. So mm-hmm. leadership is not new. I didn't come up as an academic, read a book about it, do a research project about it, and therefore infer that this is I did it. Yeah. I've done that. And so that's one. The other part of it is I'm also an academic, so I'm a hybrid, right? Right, And so the academic side, I'm able to speak to my colleagues because I'm publishing now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm still doing research. I didn't suspend my research projects. I'm still active in research. What does that mean? It means when I'm talking to my colleagues and we're talking about research, I can go there. I can talk about these things that professors think a lot about in reviewing cycles and publishing in top tier journals. I can go there because I'm still doing it. When we talk about teaching, I love teaching. I feel like I was born to teach. Right. So I love teaching. So when I walk into a classroom, I'm operating in my calling. I love doing that. What made me transition from being a corporate guy? to an academic? And that's a popular question. And I'll tell you the answer. One, when I was out in sales, calling on these major accounts and using marketing principles and coming up with you know pretty good promotions to move our products through these grocery stores, I was often asked in those companies if I could teach the other salespeople, key account salespeople, how to do that. Right. Now, I didn't know I was a teacher back then, but I naturally gravitated to that, and I naturally got in front of the, the my peers, and I used teaching principles before I even knew teaching principles, and I've all of a sudden found myself teaching. I remember going to my wife and thinking and saying to her, you know, when I think about my day and I think about all the different things I did in the course of a day, the part that I loved the most was the teaching side. Mm-hmm. So now I've got to find a career that's going to maximize that piece. And that's what led me to start thinking about the PhD. And it goes beyond that. I majored in journalism as an undergrad here. So I, I did a lot of writing then. So now as an author, I'm writing. I'm working on research projects. I'm analyzing data with the team. And we are writing articles to go to journals. So when it comes to being different, which is your question, I think my only answer is, gee whiz, I have a lot of cumulative experiences that really culminate. and, And I believe all of those experiences come together right here, right now in this role. Perfect. You talked about teaching earlier. In the book, Never Eat Alone, mm-hmm. Keith Ferrazzi talks about mentorship mm-hmm. and the idea of business, of growth in business as a never-ending cycle of seeking mentors and seeking mentees. Yeah. And if you apply that across a broad perspective, we are all teachers right. and we are all sure. learners. Right. And, and to me, one of the beauties of 
business relationships and of personal relationships. You talked about, mm-hmm. you know, how there's both. And I think in, in the best business relationships, there's always both. Right. But the idea of finding in every relationship, what can I learn from this person? Mm-hmm. What can I teach this person? Right. Um, and I'm, I, I, I enjoy that process. And it's kind of like the consultative sales right. process right. of uncovering what is that gold that I can give you? What is the gold that you can give me? And my experience is that everyone has something to teach me. Yeah. Even Kyle. Right. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> that's great. But let's go back external okay. for a moment. Okay. So we, we talked about things that we're doing internally to advance the world's prosperity and advance Maze's prosperity. What are, in your opinion, what are the biggest macro opportunities and challenges for maize, specifically for maize, mm. lurking out there in the world. So what's interesting is if you go back to our strategic plan, we started with the vision, which yeah. is to advance the world's prosperity. Right. But we have a three-part mission, too, that's part of our strategic plan. And so we captured this concept of a transformational leader. And so our three-part mission has in it that we are developing transformational leaders. If you look closely at the last year to two, perhaps, in May's Business School, you're starting to hear more about transformational leadership, the May's transformational leader. Now, this is important because we're trying to capture what I just said to you in terms of the mindsets. We're capturing that in the form of the maze transformational leader. So we have mindsets that we're helping our students think about, right? Mm -hmm. The analytical mindset, which is where you were going, the analytical mindset, the global mindset, which we talked about earlier, Right. right? We have the ethical mindset. We also have this idea of giving back to society. There's this whole societal piece, right. too, in the mindset that it takes as a business leader, a transformational leader, giving back to society. So that's built in. We have, you know, systems thinking mindset. How do you look at the big picture and put the parts together? Right. So if you go to our strategic plan at maze.tamu.edu and look at the strategic plan, you're going to see not only the vision, but you're going to see our three-part mission. And all these things we talked about are wrapped up in this idea of maze. Mm developing transformational leaders. Right. And and that also includes, if you go by the technical definition of transformational leadership, it's change embracing. So you don't run away from change, you embrace change. So, you know, we've got to get that concept across too, because as I said earlier, in the idea of a turbulent marketplace, lots of changes are occurring. Sure. So we got to get our students prepared to enter that kind of world where they're change embracing and they have the mindsets to really help transform organizations. Hmm. So as you address these broad, big picture issues as you face outward, as you are the face of the business school, what do you feel is the most important step you take to empower others to carry all of this out internally? I think about what I've learned in over 30 years of leadership. And what I've learned is the team is critical. Mm -hmm. I have direct reports. I interact with them regularly. We have 
really good conversations about expectations. And I don't mind sharing with you. Anyone reporting to me will tell you those expectations. And for starters, I always say I never want to be surprised. Okay. So I start there. And the reason for that is, you know, we we have roughly 400 people involved in our business school here and things are happening all the time as we speak there's no telling what's on my in my email box right now right yes i'll see i'll see that later but there are things going on and as a representative of the business school and at the end of the day i'm i am held responsible for everything that goes on it's all on your watch it is yeah so the 400 employees and the 6200 students i'm responsible i stepped up and said okay you want me to take responsibility for And that's a big ask, but that's what I do. And so if I'm doing that, and that means I'm representing our business school to all stakeholders, my dean colleagues on the campus, you know, my dean colleagues at business schools around the world, parents, alumni, legislators, central administration, donors, I mean, the list goes on, then I can't be surprised. And so I have to have a team. That knows that, right. which which what that means is I get a lot of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, I, you know, people communicate to me in a whole host of ways, and so I've got a lot of incoming data. So I won't be surprised. I know about just about every issue that goes on, and uh, and I work through people. Now that's one thing that you didn't ask, and I think it's in there. One of the things that I learned about leadership, right, is you've got to be able to. Trust people to get things done, because at some level, you it's beyond your control, right? You can't do it yourself, mm-hmm. and so that's critical. So I've got to be able to select people to be on my leadership team. Right. I've got to feel comfortable that uh, about what they're doing. All right, they have to understand that at the end of the day, I took responsibility. Sure, right, and so therefore, I expect communication. I expect certain behaviors. Uh, And so those who are by direct reports, they know all of this. Um, I also do a lot of extra things. For example, in my sales teaching, I use a variety of personality instruments as I teach. Mm -hmm. And the reason for it is I'm teaching people how to understand themselves better their personalities, right? And I use different instruments in Myers-Briggs. I use DISC. I use social styles. I use true colors. I use all these different instruments to help my students understand who they are, but also how to build a team. And so in addition to everything I just said, and that is getting capable people, people I trust, people who trust me too, by the way, uh, I've got to live up to the promise myself. But in addition to that, I try to surround myself with people who sort of compliment me because I know who I am. And I've taken a lot of different personality tests to figure out who I am. And so I want to have people who can compliment me because I know my strengths. I also know my weaknesses. And so if you look around my team, you'll see that. You'll see the complementary skills. One thing that another another leader shared with me back in the day was, and this was something that surprised me and I've, I've kept it with me. 
he said that leadership, it's really important to think in terms of process over results. Mm -hmm. If the person is doing the right behaviors, if they're doing the things that you have encouraged them to do and that you feel will lead to the right results in the long term, then a bad result in the short term can be something to be praised if they got to it the right way. Sure. So that was, that was something that kind of always And I think what's underneath that is also very important. That is the ability to experiment. Oh, yes. So I had a conversation with a direct report not long ago. I said, um, if you notice, I say yes a lot more than I say no. Sure. And that is a philosophical thing. That's something I've thought about for a long time. And here's what that means to me. I can't say yes to everything, all right? And my my leadership team can't say yes to everything. But we tend to say yes more than no because what it does is it enables people to try things. And I think that's part of building an innovative culture. Yes. All right? Unquestionably. So so it's the experiment. Right. And and if you were in my office and hearing me talk to people who work with me, you'll hear that word, experiment. Let's experiment with that. Right. Let's take a small version of that and try that out. Sure. So I'm I'm very interested in how do we innovate within the business school. And so, therefore, we have a map. We have a strategic plan. We have those things, those big things in place. Uh, I think... I hope everyone understands what we're trying to do with the strategic plan. We try to allocate resources according to the strategic plan. We try to hire people based on what's in the strategic plans. We use it quite a bit. But over and above that, I'd like to have people experiment with certain things. We're going to do some things this summer I'm excited about. We're getting ready to do a complete Wainer refresh. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a group of people who are on the Wainer task force. And it's the same group that's working with me to expand our building. And so, you know, it was the team that came up with this idea. Why can't we get started now? Let's not wait until we build this new building. It was the team that came back and said, could we do some things in our current building to get us to where we want to go? And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. So we, we set aside some funds and we're refreshing waiter. You'll start seeing some things down on the first floor, mm-hmm. right? So you might see blue tape on the first floor. We're, we're doing some things. We cleared out some areas. We're creating more open spaces. Right. You're going to start seeing some active learning classrooms downstairs. So to give the students an example of what we're talking about that we want Ah, to put in this new building. That's innovative. Sure. You know, that's innovation to me. So let's try it. Right. That's that's kind of part of our culture. Yes. You talked about experimenting and empowering people to experiment. And there are, I think there are a couple of interesting things that sort of flow out of that. The first one is that it's okay when the experiment doesn't work out because really with experimentation, you try a hundred things and 80 of them maybe don't work at all. Right. 10 work a little bit, five work well, Mm -hmm. you know, four work really well. And then one blows up and pays for all of the 80 that didn't work. That's right. And the other thing is that the variance in the success of the experiment, I think, decreases as we gain experience and as just as we get older, mm-hmm. as we get more life experience. So what that means then is that it is especially important to empower the young because if they are okay with sometimes some pretty spectacular flameouts, mm-hmm. then you can encourage them to keep looking for that one thing, to keep sifting right. and finding that one grand idea that then pays for all of this. Oh, sure. And I believe it was about a year ago. I lose track of time. 
we sent a message out to our students, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the notion of grit. Uh-huh. Angela Duckworth's book, I really like that. It's about perseverance. Yeah. It's about, okay, yes, you're going to fail, but fail fast, mm-hmm. right? You know, experiment. Fail fast, you're fail often. Fa- yeah, fail fast, fail, fail more. often. Learn from it, right. move on, right? Yes. And so we really like this idea of grit. I think the key to it is not so much really contemplate the failure. It really is learning from that failure and being able to persevere through it to say, look, I learned from that experiment. Now I'm going to do something different. And I think about it differently. I think about it. That's exactly my career. I've learned a lot, you know, as we talked about various experiences. What I didn't talk about is the number of failures. (laughs) Yes, I have. Right. You know, and so uh, I have folks who talk about my my deanship here. Well, I've done this job for 11 years. I've, I've done it in two other locations. So I've experimented. So, uh, you know, I, I brought some things here that I saw worked at other places. I left some things where I was, you know. So I think, you know, life is that way. You've got to be open enough to say, I'm going to try. I know I'm not going to get it all right, but I'm going to try, right? Mm-hmm. And if I try and I fail, I'm going to be okay with it. I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And my whole life has been just that. It really is a, a lifetime of experimenting, failing in some cases, learning from those, and moving on. Mm-hmm. How do you encourage people to disagree with you in a respectful way? How do you how do you strike that balance as a leader and as a very public facing leader of Helping people not be afraid to say, I think uh, you could do this better. Or, yeah, I think we could sure, do this better. Sure. But to maintain a tone of respect in the relationship. Yeah, I think that's key. It's okay to disagree. I right. mean, we have, that's the beauty of being in an academic environment. When you think about it, my professors and I, we see the world based on our disciplines, so to me, everything is marketing. <laughs> it's a marketing <laughs> guy, right? Sure, I get And more that. specifically, everything is sales because that's my lens on the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've got I've got faculty members who are finance experts, and they see things that you know from that perspective and all. And so the the good news is we value that when we get together as a leadership team and we're talking about different challenges, different things that are going on in the college and what we need to do, you know, we listen and many times someone will approach that challenge from that discipline and we want to respect that. That person is a national expert (laughs) in this particular area, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? I'll give you a very good example of this, uh, talking about disagreeing. We have a professor in our management department who has published in the area of transformational leadership, okay? Very good guy, very, very well published. He's really, really good. And so when we rolled out this idea of the maze transformational leader, he pushed back. He said, wait a minute. That's not technically what transformational leadership is. Okay. And we listen to him. He's he's a published expert sure. in transformational leadership. Right, right. And so we listened to him. We heard what he was saying. We adjusted a few things in our strategic plan to, to really go along with what he was saying. But we also said this. 
when we think about the academic side of the house, which is very important to what we do. So research leads the teaching, by the way. So that's a that's a very important aspect of our college. Right. And we think about it, the audience is a little different. So uh, in this particular case, this particular professor has been publishing and really speaking more to the academic audience, okay. which is naturally going to be more technical. But what we were saying is we're defining the maze transformational leader. We're defining what that means. And for us, that means it's a promise to recruiters coming here to hire our students. It's a promise to our professors that this is what we're developing. It's a promise. That's what I think of it as. It's a promise. It's a brand. It's a promise. And so when we say we're talking about the maze transformational leader and we want to talk about these mindsets, that's us differentiating ourselves from mm-hmm. other business schools, which I think was one of your other questions, that helps us differentiate. And we get to say at the end of the day to a company, you're hiring someone with these mindsets. Mm-hmm. And we have the principles of transformational leadership in there, right? But we have the maze definition of that, right? All right. So there's a good example of having an expert in our college who originally pushed back and said, "Wait a minute, this is different than what we're saying in our academic journals," and he's right. But it's a different audience, right? And we're saying. We're not saying that we're defining transformational leadership. We're saying that we're defining the maze transformational right. leader. Our version of Our transformational version of it. leadership. Right. And so we get those. And that's the beauty of being in an academic environment is because we have different perspectives on the world. We get to say, wait a minute, that doesn't quite work if I'm looking at it from this standpoint, this right. perspective. It's an honor to be part of a place that feels like home, a place that's dedicated to advancing the world's prosperity and inspiring transformational leaders. Thank you, Dean Jones. Before we go into the outro, we want to play a little clip from Dare to Believe by Fern Walker Jones. We hope you enjoy. And at the end of the episode, we'll have a longer clip for you. You can also download the song on iTunes. enjoyed that second part of the episode with Dean Jones for our Mastercast top three takeaways. I want to start with just saying my dad is in sales and our team here at Mays have done some selling seminars with Dean Jones that have been fantastic. If you can someday when he's not a Dean and has time, if you and your company can just get him for a few days, he's so good at teaching salespeople how to sell, but also people who don't think of themselves as salespeople how to sell. But I grew up with my dad in sales and my mom will always say when a salesperson calls or at a store, she's like, don't sell me. My husband's in sales. I know how this works. Let's move on. (laughs) And, And I feel like my whole life, my dad was selling us on something. The thing that comes up most in my life with Ryan, especially, is that my dad always sold us on watching terrible movies. So my sister and I have seen every awful movie in the world. And if you had a list of the 10 worst movies, I've probably seen eight of them. So here is something to know about all movies. Even the worst movies that you've seen in the theaters are still like the best 10% of movies. And in, True. And until you work in the movie business and start seeing movies that weren't that good enough to get cut. released, yeah. like you have you have no idea <laughs> how bad a movie can be. No, I, I that I believe. So I will say the worst movies that were released. Okay. So 
in particular, here's my warning. I am not endorsing this movie in any way, but she's one, endorsing it. I'm not. Do not watch this movie is what I'm saying. If this movie goes viral because I said this, I'm going to feel you did it. I did it. it. I will feel so bad about you and it. your giraffe necklace. You did it. <laughs> um, it's a deer. It's a deer, people. Just <laughs> it works with the name. It's a whole thing. So the bad movie that I'm going to reference at this moment is a movie called The Peanut Butter Solution. It came out in 1985. I like it already. No, Go you watch don't. This movie, no, you people. don't. Go so, see the peanut butter no, solution. You can't even as find endorsed it. by Shannon Deere on the Maze Mastercast. So here, here's why I'm telling this story because my dad would always be like, "This is the best movie ever. You and your sister are gonna love it. Come watch this movie with me." And we loved watching movies, and we fell for it every time. So I'm I'm telling this story now because my birthday was last week. And Ryan had a whole series of lovely birthday presents for me that I'll tell you about at some point. But one of them was that he found this movie, The Peanut Butter Solution, because I told him I didn't like this movie, to be clear. I told him I didn't like this movie. But I also wasn't sure it was even real because it's so bad. (laughs) Here's what it's about. This kid gets scared and loses all of his hair. And then he wants his hair back. And he's really overly upset about losing his hair. Okay. And so these ghosts give him a solution with peanut butter that he can use to grow, regrow his hair, but then his hair won't stop growing. And so it grows ridiculous amounts. And then this guy kidnaps him and makes paintbrushes out of his hair. And that is the whole thing. It is the weirdest movie in the universe. I'm really surprised that you liked this movie so much. Oh my gosh. This is what Ryan keeps doing. He's like, since this is your favorite movie, we're going to watch it for your birthday. I'm like, I hate this movie to be clear. But I think Ryan really wanted to see if this was real. It's real. It's out there. It was from Canada. Kyle's Googling it right now. You know, that's their fault. And Celine Dion does the music for it. Shannon trashing Canadians. You guys heard it. I know. Everybody heard it. I know. Congratulations to Canada, by the way. So happy for Toronto NBA title. That's really great. Um, punch up, don't punch down. That's... Cheering Kevin Durant's injury. Not such a great look. But uh, No, that was, that was rough. But anyway, my dad's actual sales to his customers is much more like Eli recommends sales. So my second takeaway is that Dean Jones has an excellent book called Selling ASAP, A-S-A-P, And he gives really, really practical tools for sales. One of them are the spin questions, which really help people to get to the need of their customer, which you talk about a lot, Ben. Mm -hmm. And then there's some things about personality styles and how it's really important not to sell to someone the way you want to be sold to, but the way you think they want to be sold to. So if you're more boisterous and get really excited by inspiring things, but your customer is really analytical. You don't want to go in with, this is the most exciting new product. You want to go in with the data and why that product would be useful to them. Yes. Mirroring is a really useful thing for salespeople because what you are, as as we talked about with Dean Jones, sales is really helping people buy and you want to help them in the way that they want to be helped. Absolutely. For our third takeaway, I can now announce that the company that Dean Jones talked about in the episode as donating some money to the Sales Leadership Institute is Reynolds & Reynolds. So the Sales Leadership Institute at Mays is called the Reynolds & Reynolds Sales Leadership Institute. So we're honored for their gift and want to give some good bull out to Reynolds & Reynolds, who's extremely supportive of Mays Business School. Thank you, Reynolds. And also you, Reynolds. (laughs) Here's to you both. (laughs) Those are our top three takeaways, and we'll kick it over to Ben for a quote. David Lloyd George 
Don't be afraid to make great leaps. You can't cross a chasm in two small jumps. Before we end today's episode, we'd like to invite you to listen to a clip from Fern Walker Jones's song, Dare to Believe. As Dean Jones said, his wife is a very talented musician, and this is a song she just released. You can download the full song on iTunes. We hope you enjoy. We did not create our heart's desires. They were divinely placed in us. This is why. 